So we're back in our message series on the life of Jesus. We're going through his whole life in the order of events that they actually happened across all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, because it's our desire to go straight into the Bible and see for ourselves with our own eyes what Jesus did, who he was, and what he actually said, because we want to know him for ourselves firsthand. And we've reached the point in Jesus' ministry after about a year, a year and a half, where he radically changes how he teaches in public. From here on out, we're only going to see Jesus teach in what is known as parables when he teaches publicly, when he teaches to the crowd. Parables were a common form of teaching in Judaism, and parables existed long before Jesus came under the earth. They predate Jesus' ministry on the earth. They were a common form of teaching that were best described as Little stories with a big message. A profound truth simplified into a very, very basic and memorable analogy. Parables were often very short, but unpacking the truth that was within them would often take much longer and require greater explanation. Jesus had used graphic analogies in his teaching before, but it was usually pretty obvious what these analogies were in the context of his teaching. These parables would require additional explanation after the parable was told. Later on in today's study, we're going to find out why Jesus begins teaching in parables. He's only going to teach in parables when he teaches publicly, but then we're going to see him explain the parables to his disciples in private. So the parable will be public, but the explanation will be private, exclusively for his disciples. Jesus himself says that this first parable we're going to study today is the key to understanding all other parables in the Bible. This is the key. He's going to talk about the four different ways that people respond to the word of God. Jesus is going to teach that there are only four responses, and everybody, including you and I, will fall into one of these four responses. And then he's going to teach why people respond in each of these four ways. Jesus is going to share this key first parable, and he's going to explain to his disciples why he started teaching in parables. Then he's going to explain that first parable. So we're going to start by reading the parable, but we're going to hold off on explaining it because Jesus is going to do that for us. He's a little bit better of a teacher than I am, so we're just going to let him take care of that. So let's get started. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew, first book in the New Testament, about probably three quarters of the way through your Bibles. Matthew chapter 13, verse 1. It says this in verse 1. On the same day, Jesus went out of the house, out of the house he was in, and sat by the sea. This would be the Sea of Galilee, and as we've shared before in those days, it was customary for a rabbi, a teacher, to sit down when he taught, and his listeners, his students, would stand. When a rabbi was reading the scriptures, he would stand. So the idea is that the rabbi honors the scriptures by standing for them, and when the rabbi teaches, his listeners would stand out of respect for him. It wasn't a weird worship the teacher thing it was just their way in their culture of honoring the equivalent people who were their pastors and because of that i'm just going to ask us all to stand right now as i grab it I'm, I'm just kidding aren't you glad that you live in a place and in an age where you get to go to church with padded chairs could be very very different be glad you're alive right now Interesting little side note, I learned that this is actually where the phrase, I can't stand anymore, comes from. It comes from when you'd be listening to somebody teach and you strongly disagreed with them, and you would say, I can't stand it, or I can't stand anymore, and you would leave. It was your way of literally saying, I'm done, I'm walking away, I literally can't stand anymore. So that's why I put you in seats, so you don't have that excuse, okay? You're already nice and comfortable. In verse 2 it says, And great multitudes were gathered together to him, so that he got into a boat and sat, and the whole multitude stood on the shore. And you've you got to understand what's going on here. You've got to get the picture. At this point in his ministry, Jesus is reaching critical mass. He's never had more momentum and more popularity than he has right now in his ministry. When it says multitudes, we are talking thousands and thousands of people showing up to hear Jesus speak. But, but not only that, word had gotten around by now that if you were sick, you could be healed just by touching Jesus. 
And there are thousands of people here. This is the complete disintegration of any type of personal space for Jesus. If you think it's exhausting when your kids just try to climb over you and just touch you, I don't know if your kids have ever done that to you. They just touch you for no apparent reason, grab your glasses if you wear glasses, and you're like, just stop touching me. Just stop touching me. That happens with my kids. I'll be standing there, and my my four-year-old will come up and just start doing Taekwondo on my legs for no apparent reason. Jesus is going through this, and everyone's just trying to touch him. It's not really a conducive environment or situation for him to teach. So here's what's interesting. Jesus climbs into a boat, pushes off a little bit offshore, sits in the boat, and begins to teach. And water is actually a natural amplification device. So he could sit in the boat and teach, and his voice would bounce off the water straight towards all the people, and he could speak audibly to a much larger group of people, and they couldn't touch him. Here's what I find really interesting as well. Jesus gets into the boat and goes out before he's healed every single person there who came to be healed. And that tells us something really interesting. It tells us that Jesus himself believed that the message he had to share with them was more important even than their physical healing. You see, Jesus was going to be teaching the gospel, which is about eternal healing. It affects forever, your eternity. Even though for many people, they felt like their present was the most pressing issue in the world. Jesus said, there's even a greater issue than that. It's your eternity And you need to hear what I have to say. So Jesus himself believed that his words were even more important than their pressing, practical, physical needs. He said, this is more important. This is about forever. In verse 3, it says this. Leaving some people probably unhealed. Then he spoke many things to them in parables, them being the public crowd, saying, Behold, a sower went out to sow. This is a farmer with seed. And as he sowed, some seed fell by the wayside. The wayside is just these paths and roads that go around the outside of a farmer's field or through it. The ground is very dry and hard. It doesn't generally get watered. It gets trampled on. It gets driven on. Cattle go on it. And so the ground is hard and packed. You can throw seed on it, and it just bounces off. It doesn't go into the ground at all. Some seed fell by the wayside, and the birds came and devoured them. You might want to underline birds. We're going to come back to that. The birds came and devoured them. Some fell on stony places. Stony places is just very shallow soil on top of a layer of bedrock. From the top, it looks fertile, but there's no depth because very quickly you hit hard rock. And the reason why this is kind of catastrophic for farming is because the plow that you would use to break up the ground couldn't go deep enough to hit the bedrock, but the bedrock was still too close to the surface for a plant to put down good roots. It would simply hit the rock and wouldn't be able to absorb the moisture it needs from the ground in order to sustain life and grow and have a decent root system. It says, some fell on stony places where they did not have much earth, and they immediately sprang up because they had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. And some fell among thorns. These would have been tough, thistle-bearing weeds, which were still in the ground after the plowing had been done. And what these weeds do is they take up all the available space, light, and water that the other plants need. They just leach it all. They just invade and steal it all, starving the proper plants of what they need. Verse 7, and some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up and choked them. But others fell on good ground and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. And this is key. Jesus says this in verse 9. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So why does Jesus say that? Why does he say, he who has ears to hear, let him hear? We're about to find out as Jesus explains why he's begun teaching in parables. Verse 10, And the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? He answered and said to them, Because it has been, and then you might want to underline, given to you to know. Because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. But to them, it has not been given. This is your first fill-in on your outline. The first principle of parables, according to Jesus, is that only believers can understand the parables of Jesus. 
Only believers can understand it. He says to the disciples, it's been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it hasn't been given. So Jesus says, these parables I'm telling, you can only understand them if you're already my disciple. It's the only way you can understand them. How amazing is this? According to Jesus, those who believe in him have been given knowledge to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. That's profound. So get this, parables don't make it easier for non-believers to understand the gospel. I would bet most of you, like me, grew up in churches where you were told that Jesus taught in parables because stories are easier to understand. And Jesus taught in parables to make it easier to understand. Jesus teaches the complete opposite right here. He says they don't make it easier for non-believers to understand the gospel. He says they can't understand them unless they're already a believer. So you can bet that most parables are going to be misunderstood by non-believers because there were, would have been people in the crowd as Jesus teaches who don't believe in him and are saying, yes, this is a deep, profound spiritual truth. I can see what's going on here. They have no idea. No idea. And we still see this today as, as people who don't believe in Jesus will say, yeah, but he's got some great teachings, so I'll put him in this book about business. And the way that they use it reveals they have no idea what Jesus was actually talking about because they can't. Jesus says you cannot understand. You might think it's really deep, but you don't know what's going on. A.W. Tozer said this. I love this quote so much I put it on your outlines. He said, knowing God is potentially more than all of this world's teachers could ever impart because those teachers, if they are without God, are on the outside looking in. There is a miracle involved here. That new believer who only a few days ago was a sinner lost and unforgiven is now by faith and through grace a child of God and on the inside looking out. I love that. This means that you and I ultimately, ultimately, cannot have a productive discussion with someone who doesn't believe in Jesus about the parables of Jesus. Because according to Jesus, it's not possible for them to comprehend the truth that he put in that parable. People who don't believe in Jesus have a need for one thing, and it's the gospel, to understand who he is, why he loves them, why it matters that he loves them, why they need to know that he loves them. Everything else is secondary to that. That's the door. That's the gateway to understanding. That's the one thing that we all need more than anything else. It's the key that unlocks understanding of everything else. Verse 12, then Jesus shares another profound principle. He says, for whoever has, to him more will be given. And he will have abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. This verse is a, is a great example of the point we just made because motivational speakers love this verse. They love this verse. There's tons of motivational speakers who don't believe in Jesus and love to teach the principle of whoever has to him more will be given. You've got to maximize your potential, what you have. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. Here's a profound principle of the kingdom of God and his word. Jesus is telling us this is how it works this is how understanding God, this is how spiritual insight, this is how profound revelation, this is how it works. You and I will receive a little bit of revelation. He'll give everyone a little bit of revelation, a little bit of truth. And depending on how we respond to what we receive, we will or will not receive more. Write this down. Our response to the revelation we have received from God determines whether or not we receive more. Our response to the revelation we receive from God determines whether or not we receive more. It's not a profound principle. Most, most jobs work this way. How are you going to do with the responsibility that you're given? You give a good return, you'll be trusted with more. There'll be the opportunity for increase. The first bit of truth that God gives us is the gospel. He comes to us by the Holy Spirit. He draws us to him and he says, I am God. I am real. And you need me because you're separated from me. And I've made a way for you to be brought back into my family, into relationship with me. I've made a way for that to happen. That's the first bit we receive. If a person rejects that, they will receive no more truth from God. 
The person who rejects that, you cannot sit down with them and say, yeah, but let's have a meaningful discussion about other facets of Christianity and the Bible. There's, there's nothing else for them because they have rejected the first offering of revelation and truth that they received. The Holy Spirit is not going to give them more based on their response to what they received first. And this is where it gets really sobering. Jesus is going to explain this later. In fact, even that little bit that they had, that little bit of revelation and truth is going to be taken away from them because they rejected it. But if we do receive the gospel, then the Holy Spirit goes on to reveal more to us and more to us. And this glorious process begins to unfold in our life as we get to know God. And he reveals himself to us in an increasing way. There's a huge lesson here for every believer. Hopefully we all desire more truth. Hopefully we all desire a greater revelation of Jesus. We want to know him more. We want to understand his word more. Whether we receive that greater revelation will depend on what we do with the revelation that we've already received. A couple of questions that I think are good for every single one of us to ask ourselves on a regular basis. Is there anything I'm not doing that I know God wants me to do? Conversely, is there anything I am doing that I know God doesn't want me to do? Those questions will identify barriers in your growing understanding of God. Because if there is something you know he wants you to do that you refuse to do, or if there is something you know he wants you to stop doing that you continue to do and refuse to change on, that's where the revelation ends. God won't say, we can skip this and come back to it later on. Here's some new revelation of me. Here's a deeper understanding of me. Here's some more truth for you. He will just camp right there and say, we got to cross this bridge before we move on to the next things. You might gain more intellectual understanding, but you're not going to gain any real spiritual understanding of God unless you can answer those questions honestly saying, no, I have responded to the truth that he's given me. I've responded. He'll say, here's some more. Here's some more. You're ready for more. When we fail to act upon the revelation that God gives us through his word, it grinds the whole process to a halt. Never forget this. This is a huge danger for us as a church that loves the word of God, that desires greater understanding. I'll be the first to tell you because I see it in my own life. The great danger is that we forget that God does not give us spiritual revelation so that we can feel smarter. It's not so that we can feel smarter. The Father gives us revelation so that we can become more like his glorious son, Jesus. That's your next fill-in. The purpose of all spiritual revelation is becoming more like Jesus. That's the purpose of all spiritual revelation, to become more like Jesus. Not so you can feel smart or have other people think you're smart, but so that you can become more like Jesus. That's the purpose. That's the goal. That's why he shares things with us. And when we stop the process, the Father will say, listen, we're just going to hang out here until you choose to respond to the revelation you've received. Until you do, I've got nothing new for you. This is why this is important. If you feel spiritually stuck, if you feel like, man, my relationship with God just does not seem fresh. It doesn't feel dynamic. It feels like I'm in the same place I was five years ago, 10 years ago, 20, 30 years ago. Go back to God. Ask him with sincerity of heart, is there anything you've asked me to do that I'm not doing? Or is there anything I'm doing that you've asked me to stop doing? almost a 100% chance that's the reason you're stuck. And I know this because I've been there. And God will illuminate something in his word. He'll say, hey, hey, remember? Remember when I showed you this in my word in your quiet time when you were at church that one Sunday and you said, man, I need to do that. And you just never got around to doing it. You'll hear the voice of the Holy Spirit saying, I'm still waiting. I've got so much for you but I'm still waiting for you to respond to the last thing I gave you. Verse 13, therefore, so for these reasons, because only believers can understand parables, because the deeper things of God are reserved for those who have gladly received the simple things of God. For these reasons, Jesus says, 
I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And in them, the non-believing Jews who refuse to accept the gospel, in them, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, which says, this is from Isaiah 6, hearing you will hear and shall not understand, and seeing you will see and not perceive, for the hearts of this people have grown dull and their ears are hard of hearing and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn so that I should heal them. Jesus concealing the truth from these people, which is what he's doing in parables. He's concealing the truth from the public, from the masses, is an act of judgment and it's an act of mercy. And I'm gonna explain why it's both of those. Those who refused to believe were being judged by simply being kept in the darkness that they loved more than the light. That's what John 1 tells us. John 1 says that's the reason people stay in the darkness. They prefer it. They prefer it. Many of them had reached the point of essentially blaspheming the Holy Spirit. So when you talk about revelation, wouldn't you say that Jesus Christ in the flesh sharing the gospel with you ranks pretty high on the scale of revelation, right? We've got his word right here. We've got the spirit. Jesus was in the flesh right in front of them. And they were rejecting that. So essentially they were at the point of, man, I don't know that I have any greater revelation for many of you. If this is not enough, Jesus Christ in the flesh in front of you talking to you, if this isn't gonna cut it for you, healing the sick right in front of you, I don't know. I don't have a greater revelation for you. So there was judgment coming upon them, but there was also mercy. If you remember over the past couple of weeks, we've seen Jesus teach that the severity of a person's eternal suffering, when they reject him, the severity of their suffering for rejecting him is going to depend on how much revelation of him they received. So the more revelation they received, the more harshly they'll be judged because he will say, you got all this and you still rejected me. There's serious consequences for that. The consequences will be serious, but not as serious for the person who just had a little bit of revelation. It doesn't get any clearer than when Jesus says it like this in Luke 12. He says, and that servant who knew his master's will and did not prepare himself or do according to his will shall be beaten with many stripes. But he who did not know yet committed things deserving of stripes shall be beaten with a few. For everyone to whom much is given from him much will be required. And to whom much has been committed of him, they will ask the more. This is why Jesus is being profoundly merciful to these people. They've rejected him in the flesh, doing miracles before them. He knows for many of them, they're never going to choose to follow him. So the only thing in play right now is, how severe is their eternal punishment going to be for rejecting God? For rejecting the invitation of God? to be healed, to be saved, to be forgiven. That's the only issue at play. How severe is their consequence going to be? So Jesus speaks to them in parables, something they can't understand. And so in doing that, they are not receiving greater revelation, which will cause them to experience greater suffering in eternity. He's actually being merciful to them by not giving them greater revelation when they've decided that they're going to reject him. Again, maybe you were taught as I was that Jesus taught in parables because everyone learns better in stories. And so Jesus was the master storyteller. It's not at all why he does it. And we have it from his own mouth right here in the scriptures. Why is this a big deal? It's a big deal because the more I read the New Testament, the more I notice that Jesus talks about and the Bible talks about bad stuff that's going to go on in the world. But Jesus doesn't say, hey, go out there, fight back change it, throw over presidents, take over countries, change the world. He doesn't say that. He says things about the world like, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart for I've overcome the world. He says, do not be afraid for these things must take place. What Jesus does warn us about an awful lot from his own mouth and in the rest of the New Testament is he says, watch out for deceit and lies in the church. He says, that's where you guys need to be watchful. That's where you need to be on top of your game. That's where you need to be alert because Satan is going to come in covertly and try and spread lies and falsehoods within the church. He says that's where you need to be fighting for truth. That's where you need to contend. 
And so over the last 35 years, this is why the parables thing matters so much. Over the last 35 years in the church, there's been sort of this huge movement to say things without saying them like, you know, the Bible is really hard to understand. Which I always think is an, uh, an ironic statement because you're essentially saying, hey, God's divine revelation of himself straight to us isn't really the best way to reach people, even though it comes straight from him. Yeah, we believe that, but we don't think it's really useful for reaching people. So we're going to say we believe in that. We're going we're to leave it over there. Then we're going to come over here, and I've come up with some neat stories that explain what's in there without actually going in there. So I'm going to share these stories instead. And the thing we don't realize is in doing that, what we're saying is, my words are more effective and more powerful than the words of Jesus Christ. Isn't he fortunate that I am here to take what he wrote and improve upon it? And that's the danger. So we buy into this whole idea that rather than having the word of God, we can have stories. I'm not against stories. I love movies. I love stories. I love books. And they can certainly complement the word of God. But I think Jesus would say to us, don't ever let it replace the word of God. Because what happens? Then suddenly, it's not about the truth of the word of God. Suddenly, it's moral teachings. Suddenly, it's principles. And suddenly, you can have a whole church where Jesus is just left out of it completely. It happens like that. This is why it's important to understand why Jesus taught in parables. He said, no, this is for believers. This isn't me applying a tactic to make it easier for non-believers. This is so that believers can get something that's only for them. I just want to put that out there for your consideration. Lest we forget that the parables of Jesus were created by Jesus. They were created by Jesus. So when we say they're just stories, they're a lot more than just stories. Uh, ju just never forget this. These incredible truths that Jesus taught, his source material was himself. It was himself. That's the difference between Jesus coming up with a parable and me coming up with a parable. Jesus' source material is himself. Yeah, this is a parable about me and my kingdom. He has a little more intimate knowledge of the subject matter than I do. And so stories can complement the word of God, but they should never replace the word of God. So maybe you're still a little bit perplexed by these last three lines from Isaiah's prophecy. Right there where it says, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn so that I should heal them. What is that all about? Wouldn't, wouldn't that be a good thing? There's a couple of things at play here. The first is this is essentially a lament from the heart of God. They have ears that can't hear, eyes that can't see. And he's essentially saying, how I wish that they would turn and be healed. But he's also explaining something else here. Jesus is explaining that he will always honor the sovereignty of man. And you might be thinking, whoa, 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 that's blasphemous. What do you, what do you mean the sovereignty of man? Here's what I mean. I mean that God will always honor the right that he gave us to choose whether or not we follow him. He's not going to force ears that don't want to hear to hear. He says, I'm not going to force eyes that don't want to see to see. Write this down. Jesus honors man's free will even though he could easily overpower it. He says, you're going to be people who have eyes to see but you don't see, ears to hear but you don't hear. And that's how I'm going to leave it, is what he says. Even though I could overpower you emotionally, intellectually, spiritually. I could teach in such a way that you would have no choice but to respond right now. He says, but I'm not going to do that. You make the choice. If you're a follower of Jesus, he has good news for you. Verse 16, he says, but, and then I want you to underline, blessed are your eyes for they see. Blessed are your eyes for they see. And then underline, and your ears for they hear. For assuredly, I say to you, underline you, that many prophets and righteous men desired to see, underline, what you see and did not see it. And, and then underline, to hear what you hear and did not hear it. All these Old Testament prophets who wrote about Jesus, they were inspired by the Holy Spirit to write prophecies about who Jesus would be, but, but they didn't understand how it would all come together. 
Many of them would have been amazed if they had seen Jesus in the flesh. But you and I, we have an understanding of Jesus that Elijah never had when he was on the earth, that not even Moses had when he was on the earth. Jesus says, you are so blessed to be living in the age that you're living in where God's entire plan for humanity has been revealed. You can understand the Old Testament through Jesus in a way that they never could before Jesus came. You can understand it all in such a deeper way. You are blessed because of that. And now Jesus begins to explain the parable that he told at the beginning. Verse 18, he says, Therefore, hear the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the real meaning there is does not receive it, then the wicked one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is he who received seed by the wayside. So as Jesus explains this parable, I want us to understand he's not explaining the ratio of responses. Jesus is not saying, hey, one in four people will get it, three out of four won't. If that were true, I would hope we'd all be out witnessing right now because it would mean if we knocked on 20 doors, five people would get saved. That would be pretty fantastic. But it's not a ratio. He's just saying these are the four types of responses that there are. And there's a lot here for us to learn about how we respond to the word of God and how those we share God's word with will respond. So write this down on your outline. The seed is the word of God. That's what Jesus has told us. The seed is the word of God. He says, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom, the seed is the word of God. In 1 Peter, it says, we've been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible seed through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. And then write this down. The sower is anyone who shares the word of God. Anyone who shares the word of God, who puts it out there. You, me, anyone who shares the word of God, the gospel, anything from the scriptures. The birds are Satan. And this is your next fill-in. Verse 19 refers to a hard heart. It's a hard heart. These are people who won't receive God's word. They're like hard ground that the seed cannot even penetrate. Instead of receiving the gospel, they say that's for the birds. Satan comes and snatches it away. That little bit of truth that they have is taken away from them. Here's why this is a big deal, because God says this is how it works. You hear the word of God. You get that first bit of truth, that first bit of revelation. You have a choice. How am I going to respond to this? But maybe you don't respond. Instead, you say, no, I'm going I'm to chew on this for a while. Jesus is warning us, saying, hey, listen, you need to know, as soon as that seed hits you, as soon as you get that little bit of truth, man, Satan is circling. He is looking to steal it away from you. You might say, no, I'm not ready to respond right now. You hop in your car, you're pondering it, you're pondering it, suddenly somebody cuts you off. What the heck was that? That freaking moron, blah, blah, blah. It's gone. It's gone. You think, man, that's just a coincidence. No, no. Satan came and snatched it away. Because you had truth. And instead of responding to it, you said, let me, let me think on this for a while. Satan jumped in, snatched it away. That little bit that you had is now gone. It's gone. I want us to notice that the seed is sowed to everyone. This is the picture. The farmer's throwing this out. It's falling on all this kind of ground, and a little bit is even running over onto this hard ground that the Bible calls the wayside. Here's why I mention this. Because in the parable, Jesus doesn't say, the sower inspected the ground to make sure he didn't waste any seed on the hard ground. And sometimes we never get around to sharing any of the word of God with anybody because we're so busy trying to figure out, is there hard soil or not? And this is what I've learned. If we want to share Jesus with people, you've got to get used to rejection. You've just got to get used to rejection. Because the model Jesus gives is not avoiding the hard ground. He just says, listen, throw it out there. If it hits the hard ground, he says, this parable will help you understand what's happening. It will help you understand, oh, that, that person is hard ground. It's hard ground. And Jesus said, don't go back again and again and again and throw more seed on the hard ground. So there's there's no point in that. On the contrary, I was reminded of the time when Jesus in the future in our timeline is going to send his disciples out two by two on a training mission. He's going to say, go preach the gospel in pairs. 
This is the instructions he says. He says, and when you go into a household, greet it. If the household is worthy, so if they welcome you, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, if they're unwelcoming, let your peace return to you. And whoever will not receive you nor hear your words when you depart from that house or city, shake off the dust from your feet. So Jesus doesn't say, no, rally the troops from a prayer circle around that person and that's where you need to focus your ministry. He says, listen, they're hard ground. Shake the dust off, move on. He's saying when there's hostility, when there's a hard heart, when there's just no interest, they're like, hey, I'm great. I'm glad you're happy, but that's just not for me. When there's just a stone wall in a person's heart, Jesus says, hey, move on, move on. Because it's foolishness to keep going back. You remember when Jesus said, said this? Matthew 7, Jesus says this about going back again and again and again and trying with that person. He says, do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. He says, doing that is like trying to give treasure to a pig. They, they just don't understand what you're giving them. Worse than that, they might turn and devour you. So he says, you're going to be the person who comes away from this the worse for wear if you keep going back to that hard heart again. Now, what if they're close to you? What if it's a family member? What if it's a dear friend? What, what if it's a spouse? Well, then you pray because that's all you can do. You cannot break up the hard ground that is their heart. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. So you pray. You pray like crazy. You pray without giving up because that's your part in the work of the Holy Spirit in that person's life. But you will burn bridges with that person if you keep going back, keep going back, hammering them when God has already shown you. Listen, they're hard ground. They're hard ground. That's the first type of soil. Verse 20, then Jesus continues and says, but he who received the seed on stony places, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for only a while. For when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. Luke's gospel tells us that these people are those who believe for a while and in time of temptation fall away. Write this down. Verse 20 and 21 refers to a shallow heart. A shallow heart. This is the person, you know, who comes to church. They hear the gospel. They hear it from you and they go, man, that is great news. Praise Jesus, I'm going to give my life to him. But they're ultimately unwilling to pay any type of price to follow Jesus. As soon as Jesus interferes with their life in any way, uh, now they fall away. This is the person who gets saved, but then can't find a way to change their schedule to be at church, to be in a discipleship group. This is the person who won't change their daily schedule to have time in God's word. No, I need my downtime. Don't, don't really have time for that. They won't change their social circle if it's leading them away from Jesus. They're not willing to pay that price. They won't change anything or give up anything or do anything for Jesus. They walk away from Jesus as soon as they realize it might be inconvenient. Without any relationship with Jesus, without God's word, without a church family, without brothers and sisters in Christ, Jesus says this person has no roots. They're not connected to any type of life source. They're like a plant growing on stony ground. It looks good. It grows fast. But there's no life connection. So as soon as the sun shines, as soon as a little bit of testing comes, a little bit of difficulty, a little bit of inconvenience, they wither up and die. Like that, they disappear. And this is heavy. And it's like nothing ever happened in the first place. You might know someone like this, and, and you're left there looking on thinking, what, what was that? What, what happened? What was that all about? Because six months later, it's as though that never even happened. Is this person saved? I'd say all signs point to no. Because Jesus tells us they were never connected to the source of life. They were never connected. They never had roots. It was all just an illusion. And if you know someone like this, you need to treat them as though they still need Jesus, as though they haven't found him yet, because there's no evidence that they have. And if they think they're saved, I know this is awkward, help them to understand that they're probably not. 
because it would be better to have that awkward conversation than for them to have that awkward conversation with Jesus when eternity is at stake. There's no more dangerous place for a person to be than to think they're right with God when they're not. It's a scary, scary place to be. And isn't it interesting that the sun that makes the unrooted plant wither and die is the same sun that makes the rooted plant grow? Testing, trial, difficulty, challenges, they all produce growth in those who are rooted in Christ. Don't you wish that you and I grew during seasons of peace and comfort? Wouldn't that be awesome? Everything in my life is awesome right now. I'm growing in Jesus in a great way. No, you're not. I'm not either. Usually it's everything is falling apart in my world, but I have found in Jesus a friend and a peace and a hope in a deeper way than I ever have before. Sun shines, the growth happens. That's just how it works. I wish it didn't work that way, but that's how it works. Verse 22, he says, Now he who received seed among the thorns is he who hears the word, and the cares of this world, and the deceitfulness of riches, Mark's gospel adds, and the desire for other things, Luke's gospel adds, and the pleasures of life, all those things choke the word, and he becomes unfruitful. Verse 22 refers to a divided heart. Write that down, a divided heart. This is the person who's also excited to receive the gospel. They believe they've given their life to Jesus. They believe they're saved. But their love for Jesus simply couldn't compete with their worldly fears, their worldly passions, and their worldly pursuits. When Jesus refers to the cares of this world, he's referring to the things that stress us out. This speaks more to not having enough money, trouble in our relationships, problems at work, stuff like that that can consume our focus. Jesus says that's the stuff that comes up and just overpowers your relationship with God. It becomes the consuming thing in your life. On the flip side, he refers to the deceitfulness of riches. This is the person who has no material problems. And I know we're all thinking of somebody richer than us, but, but we need to remember that we're in the richest 5% of people in the world. Every single one of us pretty much here is in the richest 5% of people in the world. We're in a room right now where because we didn't like the weather, we changed it. We changed it. We're like, no, 10 degrees cooler. Thank you. We're in the richest 5% of people in the world. Pretty much every single one of us. But how are riches deceitful? Well, in Revelation 3, Jesus writes a letter to the church in Laodicea. And that church, in part, represents the church age, the era that we're living in. And in that letter to the church, Jesus says this. He says, so then, because you are lukewarm, and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing. And do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. Riches are deceitful because they easily cause its possessors to equate material prosperity with spiritual prosperity. That's where riches, riches are deceitful. We can say, listen, because all my needs are met, I'm good. And the statement I'm good must also mean that I'm good with God. That's how riches are deceitful. This is why Jesus said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Because there is this barrier that riches can provide where it's so hard for us to realize that we have need for God. That, I think, is the great barrier for people in Vancouver is just, I don't need God. I need nothing. I got great friends. I live here. Have you seen where I live? Do you know how good my life is? That's why revival happens in places like China and Africa and South America. Because they have needs materially. And so it's no big thing for them to understand that they have needs spiritually. Many of us don't have 
needs materially. And so we have a hard time viewing ourselves as being in spiritual poverty. We have a really hard time with that. J.D. Rockefeller was once asked, how much money is enough for a man? He smiled and answered, just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. You might not think you're rich, but the same spirit that drove Rockefeller can drive you. Just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. I just got to take care of a few things, then I'll get then I'll get down to my relationship with God. Just got to get a few things in place. Finish this. Take care of that. There's always going to be the temptation to pursue fleshly pleasures over Jesus. There's always going to be the temptation to put your career before Jesus. There's always going to be the temptation to put a more comfortable lifestyle ahead of Jesus. There's always, always, always going to be something competing against Jesus for your time, energy, passion, talents, resources. So the seed that fell among the thorns is the person whose fears, dreams, or passions are simply stronger than their love for Jesus. They squeeze him out. Is this person saved? I think the scariest thing is that we don't know. We don't know. Did they give their life to Jesus? They belong to him and they've just gotten distracted or did they never really give their life to Jesus? We don't know. That's a dangerous place to be. That's not a place where you want to be. I think this is the person who, who shows up at church every now and then, and you, you see them on Christmas Eve and Easter. They know some Bible verses. They'll even put some christian stuff on Facebook every now and then. And in their mind, yeah, man, I'm connected to the body of Christ. I'm following Jesus. They're just in a really busy season right now. They've just got a lot going on right now. I've known so many people like this. No, 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 where I am right now is not reflective of my relationship with Jesus. I'm just in a busy season. I just got a lot going on right now. When things calm down, then we'll get dialed in. Things are never gonna calm down. Jesus has to be first. If you know someone in this place, I, I would encourage you to help them see that the evidence in their life doesn't point to them being saved. It's always worth asking, man, if somebody looked at my life from the outside and, and didn't converse with me, what would they conclude is the single most important thing in my life? What conclusion would they draw? And if you know someone who's in this place, I just encourage you to remind them of the real gospel, the one where we become disciples of Jesus, the one where we actually follow Jesus, the one where Jesus becomes everything, because that is the gospel. There is no other gospel. And that's the gospel we all need. You know, I've wrestled over the years with the question of how do you know when someone is saved? How do you know? Because as a pastor, when you end a service and you give people a chance to respond and give their lives to Jesus, you can think, man, I want to get the wording just right so that it really counts. Here's what I've learned. I read the parable of the sower again a few years ago, and I realized, you know what? For most people, you won't know till six months later whether they gave their life to God or not. Because we need time for the sun to shine to reveal whether there are any roots there. We need time for some weeds to come out to find out if they're going to choke that relationship with Jesus or not. The truth is being saved is revealed in our life over time, especially when things get difficult. Everything is revealed. Everything is laid bare. Then verse 23 he says, but he who received seed on the good ground is he who hears the word of God and understands it, receives it, who indeed bears fruit and produces some a hundredfold, some 60, some 30. So write this down. Verse 23 refers to a devoted heart, a devoted heart. An average ratio of harvested grain to what had been sown was eight to one. That was an average return, 8 to 1. An exceptional return would have been 10 to 1. So when Jesus talks about 100-fold, 60, 30, this is a ridiculous, exponential, enormous return on the seed that is sown. And you might hear this and think, man, am I doing something wrong because I don't, I don't see that sort of return on Jesus in my life. I don't see that sort of harvest. Am I doing something wrong? I think you're going to find this little tidbit that Luke's gospel adds in this story very encouraging. In Luke's gospel, it says, 
having heard the word with a noble and good heart, keep it and bear fruit with patience. And how do you underline that? With patience. Because it takes a while. You know, many of us are never going to understand the spiritual fruit that we've produced until we arrive in the presence of Jesus. What a moment that's going to be when Jesus reveals things to us and he says, hey, yeah, that person over there who's here now, yeah, it, it took 27 touches, 27 drops for them to respond to the gospel. You were number 14. And there'll be all these people we had no idea God used us to impact for eternity. But I believe there's going to be this moment when he just lays it all bare and he says, yeah, here's how I used you. Just being patient, just responding as best you could to the truth that I gave you. I know you were doing your best, and so I used that. I used this because you responded. We're going to be astounded one day by what Jesus used us to do. Jesus never tells us to obsess about producing fruit. He doesn't say spend your time worrying about it, consume yourself with this. Jesus tells us to obsess over him. He says then the fruit will take care of itself. No tree strains to produce fruit. The tree instead strains to put down deep roots and be connected to the source of life, to moisture, to that living water. That's what the tree focuses on. And then the fruit just happens like that when the tree is healthy. Jesus said this in John 15. He said, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. How do you bear much fruit? You abide in him. You live in Christ. You cling to Christ. You stick with Christ. You live with him. You walk with him. You obsess over him. And the fruit just happens. It really is that simple. Mark's gospel includes one last line. It's going to be important for next week's study. It says, and Jesus said to them, do you not understand this parable? Then how will you understand all the parables? Next week, we're going to find out that this parable unlocks some of the very next parables that Jesus is going to tell. It's the key to everything. So wrapping this up, Jesus wants us to understand that when it comes to the gospel, every single one of us will respond in one of these four ways. We'll all respond. And so the first thing I want to ask today is how have you responded to the gospel? What type of soil have you been to the gospel? Are you the hard heart? who's never responded, if that's you, today is your opportunity to respond. And I plead with you, when you walk out of here, if you don't respond, you need to know this little bit of truth that God's revealing in your heart right now will be taken away from you like that because there's an enemy who's out to do that. Have you responded to the gospel with a quick bit of enthusiasm but then it didn't really mean anything. As soon as you realize, man, I might have to change some things about how I live my life. Some priorities might need to change. When you hit that point, did you just stop? You need to know you're not saved. You're not saved. Jesus never became Lord of your life. The picture is there's a throne, there's one position, head of your life. When we're born, we're in charge of it. We're on the throne. Being saved is getting off the throne and saying, Jesus, you get on it. If Jesus has never gotten on the throne, you're not saved. Maybe you're that person who says, man, I think I'm saved, but it's just being choked out by all these other things. Maybe you've begun to believe the lie. No, 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 I love Jesus most of all. I've just got a lot going on right now. And I have to prioritize these things right now. And then when everything calms down, then, then I'll come back. I'll prioritize Jesus. Make sure that you're saved. Make sure he's on that throne. Jesus doesn't become the priority because there's no competition. There's always competition. He becomes the priority when he's simply more important than the competition. Where I want us all to be is to be the good soil where we said, yeah, Jesus came in. I got that bit of truth and I responded. And I said, you get on the throne. You're in charge now. You be on the throne. My God, my master, my Lord, my Savior, you be on the throne. That's where you want to be. If Jesus is not on the throne of your life and he never has been, you're going to have a chance to respond as we pray in just a minute. 
every single one of us who is a believer is one of these types of soils right now. You might be saved. You've been the good soil to the gospel, but maybe you're in a place where you're the hard ground right now. And when you ask that question, is there anything Jesus wants me to do that I'm not doing? Or is there anything he wants me to stop doing that I am doing? You know the answer. But right now you're the hard ground. You hear it and it's just bouncing right off the ground. Hard ground right now. Don't deceive yourself. Maybe you're the person who's received the gospel with joy, but you become disconnected from Christ. Just suddenly, days are turning into weeks and are turning into months, and you've not been connected to God. You haven't been in His Word. You're not connected to Him throughout the day in prayer. And, and man, the sun is shining, and you are just withering and dying out. Dying out. Maybe the lesson for you today is, man, I need to become reconnected to the source of life because it's becoming obvious that I'm not right now. You need to become reconnected to Jesus. And maybe you're like the third soul, maybe just the cares of this world, the pressures, the stresses, emotional stress, financial stress, relational stress, work stress, maybe these things are just overpowering. Maybe what you need to remember today is what Jesus says. He says, man, I am above all principalities, above all powers, above every name that is named in heaven and on earth. Jesus says, I'm greater than all of those things. So why don't you keep me on the throne of your life and watch me be greater than all of those things? But hopefully, we can all be in the place where we're good soil, where we hear truth, we receive revelation from the word of God, and we respond like that. We change what needs to be changed. We just respond. Man, if you are there, you are blessed because God is going to reveal more and more truth to you. If you think you've heard it all, he hasn't even gotten started with you if you're there. The mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. He has an infinite amount to share with you. The Jewish rabbis talk about the glory and the beauty of God like a multifaceted diamond that you would hold up to the light and whichever way you turn it, the light shines through it a slightly different way. And the, the picture is that there are infinite aspects of beauty to this diamond. Just as there are infinite aspects to the beauty and glory of God, you will never work your way through all of them. Not here, not in eternity. Ever. You'll spend eternity going, wow, 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 wow. That's what eternity is going to be like. Just the best day ever, every day, all the time. It's going to be amazing. Don't worry, we'll have the capacity to endure it. If you're like, it sounds really tiring. You'll have a new body. Don't worry, it's going to be all good. So the question is, what type of soil are you today? What type of soil are you to the gospel? What type of soil are you to the word of God? Is there anything that he's asked you to do that you haven't done? Is there anything you're doing that he's asked you not to do? Would you bow your head and close your eyes with me? And this is just to keep our focus on Jesus and Give us a moment of introspection. And so the first thing I want to do is give an opportunity to anybody here today who would say, when I look at my life, if I am honest, I've been the hard ground to the gospel. Or I've been the stony ground where it never really changed anything. I was excited about it, but you know what? I, I never got off the throne of my life. Jesus has never been on the throne. If that's you, or maybe you're the third type, where you're just not sure if he's ever been on the throne. You're not sure if he's ever been greater in your life than the cares of this world, the pursuits of this world, the deceitfulness of riches. If that's you, I need you to know that Jesus, the Holy Spirit, the Father God, is giving you truth today, and he's saying, what will you do with it? This is not for you to take home and ponder. This is for right now. Because he got you here for this moment so that you could have right now. If you leave here today without responding, I know what will happen. The little bit of truth you have will be taken from you. I don't want to see that happen. God doesn't want to see that happen. That's why he got you here. That's why you're here. 
I believe in faith that the Holy Spirit is just illuminating in every single one of our hearts right now the kind of soil that we've been to the Word of God, to the revelation that we've received. I believe that the Holy Spirit is shining a light on those things we need to let go of. He's shining a light on those things we need to do that we've resisted. And I want to let you know that repentance is not about this moment right now. Repentance is walked out by walking out of here and changing those things. That's what repentance is. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray very simply that our love for you would be greater than the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, the pleasures of this life. I pray that you would be on the throne of our lives in every area of our lives. And that when you said you were greater than all of those things, I pray that we would live out lives that show we believe that. That we don't need to put you on the side while we deal with a problem. We need to put you on the throne and watch you deal with our problems. Because you are greater. And we believe you will be greater than whatever we're facing. Father, help us to be good soil. Not because we're scared, God, but because we want more of you. We want to know you more deeply, God. Every single one of us wants to get to the place where we've seen so much of you that all the distractions simply can't hold a candle to you. They can't compete anymore because we've seen enough of you. 